The words to which I should like to call your attention this morning are to be found in Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians, in the second chapter, verses 4 and 5. Verses 4 and 5 in the second chapter of Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of men's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. It has always been my custom on the first Sunday in October to start a series of sermons working through one of the books of the Bible. I vary the practice uh, this morning for this good reason. The last two Sunday mornings we have been considering together the question of authority. And it seems to me that our consideration of that great and vital subject would not be complete without this further consideration. I hope, therefore, next Sunday morning, God willing, to resume our study of the, Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, beginning at the third, first verse of the third chapter. But I do this, I say, because, as I've been saying the two previous Sunday mornings, this question of authority, it seems to me, is such a vital one in the life and history of the Church at the present time that it demands special emphasis. Of course, we come across it constantly as we work through and study the Scriptures. But uh, as I see things at the moment, I felt uh, that it is of such paramount importance that we should at any rate spend three Sunday mornings in considering it. Now, the first Sunday morning, we considered the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then last Sunday morning, we were considering the authority of the Scriptures, the authority of the Bible. That is the order, I think, in which these things should be taken. But now we come to the third, and the third is the authority of the Holy Spirit, or if you like, the authority of the Holy Ghost. Now, we must go on to this, because if we had stopped at the point at which we arrived at the end last Sunday morning, there is a sense in which it all might have been quite useless and ultimately of no value at all. Because it is possible, alas, to hold to those two positions in a purely intellectual manner. There have been people who have been perfectly orthodox about our Lord and perfectly orthodox in their view of the Scripture, but they have been quite lifeless, they have been quite useless. We've got to recognize it. There is such a possibility as a dead orthodoxy. And it is only as we come to consider this great biblical teaching and doctrine concerning the Holy Spirit that we can see how these things, which are absolutely essential and which must come first, enter into the practicalities of our whole situation. And therefore, there is no question at all that from the immediate practical standpoint, what we are considering this morning is the one which is most urgent of all. There have been periods in the history of the church when uh, the church has been thoroughly orthodox but uh, has not made any impact upon the life of the people and the nations and therefore has been quite dead. Here is the doctrine which shows us how these things, the Lord himself and the word, become living to us and alive and practical. This is true of us as individuals. It is true of the church in general. And surely there is nothing more important at the present time 
We all must face this individually. Why is it that we're not enjoying what the Apostle calls in that third chapter of Ephesians, which we're going to consider, the unsearchable riches of Christ? Why is it that we're not all filled with all the fullness of God? Why is it? Well, surely the answer is that somewhere or another we are defective in our doctrine concerning the work of the Holy Spirit. And the same thing, you see, arises in the life of the church. It's the great question confronting all the churches today, this question of evangelism. Why is the church ineffective and what can be done to make her effective? Now, that's what we are considering. So that from the practical standpoint, we are bound to consider this. There's another aspect of this matter that might well detain us. I merely mention it in passing. People have oftentimes been in great difficulties as to how to reconcile precisely the authority of the Word and the authority of the Holy Spirit. Now, 300 years ago, in the Puritan period, there was a great dispute about that. There was a division amongst the Puritans. The Quakers went off on one side and the rest remained on the other side, speaking generally. And the division was over this. Some of the Quakers tended to say that really nothing mattered but the inner light, the inner power and influence of the Spirit. And they sat very loosely to the Word. That may well account for the subsequent history of the Quaker movement. Then it was, they said, only the Spirit and the inner light. But the others said, no, that's wrong. Here is the Word also. Well, we needn't go into that this morning. There is no contradiction, obviously. It is the Spirit who has given us the word, as we saw last Sunday morning. And the word and the spirit must always go together. What I may think is a leading from God is not a leading from God if it contradicts the word. I test every movement, every feeling, every sensation, every experience by the word. We need both, not the word only, not the spirit only, but the spirit through the word, using the word in order to do this work. But... The thing that I'm most concerned about this morning is this. Why is it that this aspect of the matter seems to be neglected amongst us? I don't think anybody can dispute that. The doctrine of the Holy Spirit and his work has, I suggest, been seriously neglected. And we hear very little about it even at the present time. Why is that? I'm trying to deal with these matters in a very practical way this morning. Well, I suggest that probably the main explanation is this. That for some reason or another, the church of God has become respectable. Now, it's very valuable to look at these things historically. It's a very good starting point to go back, say, to 200 years ago, that great evangelical awakening and its profound influence upon the life of this country, transforming it in so many ways and determining its character for about 150 years. And you read about the movement, that great movement of the Spirit of God. Well, now, what's happened? It's patent that we are not experiencing anything like that now. No one would say that this is a time of revival. It very clearly isn't. Now, why? Why isn't it? What's gone wrong? Where did the change come in? Well, I think it came in in the Victorian period, uh, somewhere around about the middle of that period, when... Um, uh, Christian people, as the result, I've no doubt, partly of the spread of education and of knowledge, began uh, to feel that uh, we must uh, have uh, order and decorum. Everything must be done in a dignified manner. That's the word, dignity. 
it came into nonconformity in particular, which uh, had experienced in such great measure and almost exclusively the power of the Spirit. But people began to say, ah, oh, well, yes, that's all right, but you must now remember that people have become educated and uh, they, they need something different. The pride of learning, pride of knowledge came in. And so the freedom of the Spirit seemed to go. And you had learned sermons and learned discourses and lectures and societies came up and the life of the church became very formal. And for a while it persisted. But increasingly it has ceased to be effective and the very statistics of church membership speaking generally show that it has no power and no real life. Or perhaps I could put it like this. There seems to be a dread and horror of enthusiasm amongst Christian people. They're afraid of excesses. Well, now, of course, that's perfectly right. No one wants excesses. You've never read an account of a revival, but that you will see that the devil has always come in and tried to come in, and he has tried to spoil the work by producing excesses. And undoubtedly, there are excesses. And when you get the power of the Holy Spirit working in might, you will always see certain excesses. And I, as I understand the situation, people today have become so alarmed and terrified of the excesses that they've gone to the other extreme and are undoubtedly guilty of quenching the spirit. Everything must be ordered, everything must be controlled, freedom of the spirit is never considered. The great word is this dignity, this control. Everything must always be within certain bounds. It seems to me that this is a matter that the church has got to face very, very seriously. Whether in our fear of excesses we are not guilty of this other and equally great, if not greater sin. You will recall how in the 18th century to which I've already referred, it was the same in the previous century in amongst the Puritans and it was a charge proffered against the Protestant fathers also. The state formal church has always, has always tried to dismiss powerful movements of the Spirit of God in terms of enthusiasm. That's the word. The Wesleys and Whitfield were regarded as enthusiasts. It was the charge the bishops constantly brought against them. This, they said, is enthusiasm. As if you should be enthusiastic on the football field and in, in the boxing booth and everywhere else but in the Church of God. But in the Church of God, oh no, you must... Uh, primarily be respectable and you must be very ordered you must never be moved emotion ah oh, they say it's emotionalism they're so terrified of emotionalism that there's no emotion and you get a sickly saccharine sentimentalism uh, taking the place of a true a grand a glorious emotion now i think that there somewhere or another we probably have the explanation of this neglect of this doctrine and therefore the explanation of the tragic contrast between the church today and the church as you see it in the New Testament. The New Testament church is what we may call a pneumatic church. You can't read without seeing the power of the Spirit, the presidency, the authority of the Spirit. You feel it everywhere. And what a power it was. But that is not evident. Why? Well, I think I'm giving you the explanation. Now, here is the interesting point. The church is today well aware of the fact that she is lacking in authority. And she is seeking for authority. But as I see it, the tragedy is 
She is seeking for authority almost everywhere except in the one place where it is to be obtained. Here's the question. How can the church address the world and influence it and attract it? Now then, that's the search for authority. Now, this is the amazing thing that the history of the church shows so clearly. At such a time as this, the church always seems to make the same error. By the end of the 17th century and the beginning of the 18th century, the church in this country was very dead. In the main, she was still orthodox, but she was dead. And the authorities began to realize that. And they said something must be done about this. How can we reestablish the position of the church in the nation? And this is what they did. A man of the name of Boyle set up the famous Boyle Lectures. What were they? Well, they were a series of lectures to show that the scriptures are the word of God, apologetic for the Bible, to reassert the authority. This is the way, they said, we must educate people, give them lectures and bring them to see this, the Boyle Lectures. And then a man, you remember, Bishop Butler, wrote his famous analogy of religion. What was that meant to do? Exactly the same thing. It was to prove the truth of the Christian message as over against rationalism of various types and philosophies. Here he was buttressing up the faith, re-establishing the authority of the word and of the message. Bishop Butler's analogy. Here it is, defense of the faith, apologetics. But you remember, don't you, that it was neither of these things that really restored the authority and made the church the mightiest influence in the land? What was it? Oh, I'll tell you what it was. It was the Holy Spirit suddenly coming upon George Whitfield and later upon John and Charles Wesley. It was this mighty movement of the Spirit of God and what your boy lectures and the apologetics of a Bishop Butler had completely failed to do. God, pouring forth his Spirit in revival, did. Unexpectedly, but there it is. Now come on to the next century, the 19th century, and you find exactly the same thing. The influence and the impact of that great awakening was beginning to wane, and again people said, what can we do to reestablish the authority of the church? And there were two main answers given. People like uh, Newman, later Cardinal Newman, and uh, Pusey and Keeble, they looked at it like this. They said the only way to do this is we must give greater authority to the preachers. How do we do that? Well, they said the trouble is the preachers have been too near the people, as it were. We must give them an authority. We must invest them with an authority. Take them further away from the people. Put vestments upon them. Dress them up in a given manner. Call them priests. Go back and talk about apostolic succession. The whole Anglo-Catholic movement began for that very reason. It was nothing but a search for authority. They said, we must have some authority. And they tried to make this artificial authority in terms of some kind of apostolic succession and decking up the authority of the priest, the preacher, in that way. Others, of course, who didn't approve of that, they tried it in another way. They said the only way to do this is to increase the learning and the knowledge of the church and her preachers. So they went in for a different type of training for the ministry, brought in philosophy, brought in a knowledge of science and so on. You must have learned men in the pulpits, they said, and they put it into practice. Now, both those things have been going on, but of course they didn't touch the situation. 
And again, the only thing that did touch the situation was that great movement of the Spirit of God, that great revival again in America in 1857, in this country, in various parts of this country, in uh, 1858 and 1859. Exactly the same thing once more. Well, now you come to today and what you find, well, I think the church is still falling into the old fallacies. And it's true of every section of the church. Some sections of the church, this is the commonest one of all, are putting it like this. They say the only way to deal with these things is to show that the church is really interested in the affairs of the people. So we must have a social concern. That's been going on now for years. Their argument is this, you see. They say the people won't come and listen to you if you're only talking about, soul, about the soul and about heaven. The people are interested in bricks and mortars, pounds, shillings and pence. If the church doesn't take an active social interest, people won't listen. That's why you've lost the people. So they've tried to take a great interest in social affairs. All their great gatherings, they send resolutions to the government. The press always gives it publicity. But has it worked? Has it drawn and attracted the people? By now they're beginning to see that that isn't the answer. So they're beginning to say this. What is needed is they say more publicity for the church. Set up publicity agents, press agents, put your paragraphs in the press, get the press interested and boom it and advertise it. The church needs to be advertised. That's being tried. Then others have said, no, the whole trouble is that the church is so divided. And the only way to give authority to the church is to have a great world church. Abolish all divisions and distinctions. Let's all be one in a great mammoth organization and then we will really influence the world. There are many subdivisions of this. And I'm speaking not only of those who are not evangelical, but of evangelical. Evangelicals believe in the power of advertising as much as the others. They talk about not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. But they're ready to spend thousands in advertising, in buying up time on the wireless, and so on and so forth. It's the same thing. We must do this in a big way, they say. We must put it over, organize it brilliantly, and it's bound to do it. Do you see the church in this century is falling into the same old error, the same pitfall, as she has fallen in always. Isn't it this? The church, realizing her weakness and realizing the need of authority, seems always to look everywhere and to try everything, except the one thing that is so plainly taught in the Scriptures themselves, which is the power and the authority of the Holy Spirit. Now then, let me try to show you that. What does the scripture tell us about the authority and the power of the Holy Spirit? Well, of course, it's a great subject. I'm only going to pick things out for you. But this is what it does teach. The authority of the Holy Spirit is seen in the scriptures themselves. We saw that partly last Sunday morning as we considered those two great texts, 2 Timothy 3.16, and 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. You see, it is the control of the spirit of the writers and the speakers that establishes the authority of the scriptures and of the Lord himself. Here again we've seen it in this second chapter of 1 Corinthians. The princes of this world didn't recognize the Lord and they didn't submit to him. Why? They didn't recognize him. Had they done so, they would not have crucified him. Why didn't they recognize him? Because the Spirit hadn't enlightened them. We know these things because the Spirit has revealed them, says Paul. Very well then, there is one, but you see it in another way. Some of these biblical writers, as we saw, tell us quite frankly, 
that they didn't fully understand what they were writing. In other words, they were not the primary authors, they were the secondary authors. The Holy Spirit was the primary author. And he used these men. Thirdly, you will find this. Look in your New Testament, watch your Old Testament quotations in the New. And sometimes you'll find they're slightly changed. There's a modification. Not a denial, but a, but a different application. What does that prove? It proves again the lordship, the authority of the Spirit. The same Spirit who spoke in the men in the Old is speaking through the men in the New. And he takes his own idea and gives it a different direction. The lordship of the Spirit. The authority of the Spirit over all. I don't stay with that because I did refer to it last Sunday, but come to something more important. Have we, I wonder, often considered the matter of the lordship and the authority of the Spirit as seen in the life and ministry of our blessed Lord and Savior himself? Have we pondered at that amazing thing that happened to him at his baptism? How as he was coming up out of the water, the Holy Spirit descended upon him in the form of a dove and the voice came from heaven? What is this? Well, the answer the scripture gives is this, that the Lord Jesus Christ himself received the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit came upon him at that point to anoint him and to prepare him and to equip him for his own particular ministry. You remember that categorical statement which we've got in the third chapter of the Gospel according to St. John, which is so crucial in connection with this verse 34. For he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God. For God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him, God gave his spirit without measure unto his own son when? At the outset of his public ministry. Of course he's the eternal son of God. Of course, therefore, he and the spirit are one. Yes, but he has now humbled himself. He has laid aside the insignia of his glory. He has come here and he's going to live and work as a man. And he can't do it without this power of the spirit. God giveth not the spirit by measure unto him. But listen again to John six twenty-seven. Our Lord turns to these people who had followed him and he says to them, Ye seek me not because he saw the miracles, but because he did eat of the loaves and were filled. Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you. For him hath God the Father sealed. What does that mean? Well, you turn up the authorities you will find that they all agree with Bishop Westcott when he says in his commentary, it was the public authentication. God sealed his son there by sending the Spirit upon him and by uttering the words, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then, just to show you the thing completely, you remember what our Lord said when after the temptation in the wilderness he went back to his home city of Nazareth and entered according to his custom into the synagogue on the Sunday. And then, you remember, he read those words from the book of the prophet Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. What is it? This. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. 
He's speaking about himself. Because he hath anointed me by the Spirit to preach. Now the significance of all this is just this. That even the Son of God himself when he was here on earth could not preach and do his work without the Holy Spirit. There at the outset, the beginning of his public ministry, the Holy Spirit comes upon him. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. I'm anointed. Without the anointing, I say it with reverence, it's the teaching of the Scripture. Even he could not have done his work. It is this power that enabled him. What a tremendous fact, therefore, and how significant from your standpoint and mine. Even the Lord of glory himself, here in this human form, in the likeness of men, could not accomplish his task without the power given to him by the Holy Spirit. Hence his need of prayer, you see, and hence his dependence upon this power. But come, let us come to ourselves. What does the scripture teach us about the authority of the Holy Spirit in the individual believer? Now I'm only picking out this question of authority. What is the authority with regard to you and myself as individual believers? Well, here's the answer. You see it very clearly, don't you, in the very matter of believing the gospel at all? It's there once and forever in our Lord's conversation with Nicodemus, who stumbled and put his questions, but he kept on getting the same answer. He's got to be born of water and of the Spirit before he can ever believe these things and know them. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And without the Spirit, the greatest natural man is a babe and an ignoramus. He can't take it. It's impossible. It's like the wind that bloweth where it listeth. There it is. The power of the Spirit. Absolutely essential. You go on to the church in the chapter of Acts, and you get it there in Acts 16. The first convert in Europe... Uh, when Paul preached was Lydia, the seller of purple from, from Thyatira. And you remember what we are told about her? Why did she believe? How did she come to believe? What enabled her to believe? Here's the answer. Whose heart the Lord opened that she attended unto the things that were spoken of Paul. That's the way. The Lord by the Spirit opened her heart. She wouldn't have believed otherwise. Paul puts it explicitly in 1 Corinthians 2. That's why I read it to you. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness unto him, neither can he. We have received not the Spirit that is of the world, but the Spirit that is of God. Why? That we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, but without the Spirit you can't. The Spirit is the authority, and it is only when the Word comes with His authority that men and women believe. They hear words otherwise, but they don't believe. They cannot. We have the mind of Christ. That's our secret. Indeed, it's everywhere. Take an explicit statement like this in 1 Corinthians 12, 3. No man can say that Jesus is the Lord, but by the Holy Ghost. He cannot, under any other circumstances, the authority of the Holy Spirit. And indeed, I could go on quoting endlessly. It's all there in Ephesians 2, which we spent our time considering last uh, session 
You, as he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins. What's quickening? This authority of the Spirit coming and doing his work. There it is. It's essential to belief. But you see, it's equally essential in the matter of assurance of belief and of salvation. Work it out for yourselves. Read it at your leisure. You know, the final form of assurance given to any of us is this. The Spirit beareth witness with our spirits that we are the children of God. Assurance, you know, doesn't stop at just saying, do you believe the Scriptures? Yes, well, the Scriptures say, whosoever believeth is not condemned. Do you believe? Yes, very well, you're not condemned. That's the first, that's the lowest form of assurance. There's a higher form. What's that? Well, that you see the fruit of the Spirit in yourself. You work through the first epistle of John. You look at the tests. You apply them to yourself. Uh, do you find them? Do you love the brethren and so on? If, if you do, very well, you can deduce assurance. But there's a much higher assurance than both those. The Spirit himself beareth witness with our spirits that we are the children of God. That's not a deduction. That's not an argument that you work out. The Spirit himself speaks to you. Direct, immediate, without any intermediary, assuring you of these things. That's what the apostle means when he talks about the sealing of the Spirit in 2 Corinthians 1st chapter and in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, in whom having believed or after he believed, whichever you prefer, he was sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. Assurance. And you know, finally, nothing can give this assurance but the Holy Spirit. It was the whole secret of those men in the 18th century, as it has always been. It was when he got that in Aldersgate Street that Wesley's ministry was transformed. He was outside it before, now it was within him, and he spoke as a living witness. It was equally true of Whitfield, it's true of all of them. There's inner witness of the Spirit, confirming the word to them. So you see, it's essential in assurance. But also the authority of the Spirit comes out in the matter of understanding. People come and say, I'm reading my scriptures, but I don't understand. I'm in trouble here and there. Well, it's the business of preaching to help that, the business of lecturing, instruction, call it what you like. But you know, this is the real answer, which you again find in John's first epistle, chapter 2, verse 20. But ye have an unction from the Holy One, and ye know all things. What's he talking about? Well, he's talking about those antichrists who were troubling the early church. There had been people in the church, they'd been received into membership, but they'd gone out. Why? Well, they were saying that Jesus' body was not a real one. It was a phantom body. They'd fallen into that horrible heresy. Ah, oh, but you are all right, says John. You've got an unction from the Holy One, and you know all things. That's the test. Then he puts it again in the same chapter. But the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you. In other words, every true child of God has an understanding of Scripture that nobody else has. And that is why you've often found in the long history of the church that while the whole church and its doctors and great men and teachers have all been astray and dead and useless, there has been a little remnant, a little elect according to God's calling that has preserved the truth and has gone on. It wasn't that they had a, the learning the others had, they hadn't a tenth of it, sometimes not a hundredth of it, but they had one thing, they had this unction, this anointing. They saw the truth. Ah, uh, let me give you a word from the saintly Samuel Rutherford. 
If you would be a deep divine, said Samuel Rutherford, I recommend to you sanctification. If you want to be a deep divine, go in for sanctification. Not book learning, not academic instruction. If you want really to understand these profundities and be a profound and a deep divine, go in for sanctification. You remember how our Lord himself said really the same thing? If he do of his will, he shall know of the doctrine. You can't find it, you can't know it in any other way. Let us therefore realize that there are certain things which must never be separated. But let me hurry on. Look at the authority of the Spirit in the matter of the defense of the truth. And this again is illustrated endlessly in the scriptures. Let me give you one from Acts 6, the story in connection with Philip. We are told that there arose in certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertans, certain people who disputed with Stephen. But listen to this. They were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. It wasn't again his knowledge. It was the power. It was this spirit that was in him. So you see, Stephen didn't counter the opposition by means of apologetics or of learning. He didn't try to bring out scientific arguments. No, no, it was the spirit that was in him and they couldn't resist it. The Apostle Paul is very concerned about this. There's a great statement in this first, chap- first epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 4, verses 19 and 20. Certain people in Corinth, you remember, had been criticizing Paul and saying things about him and they'd been listening to other teachers and so on and so forth. And Paul writes, and this is what he says, But I will come to you shortly, if the Lord will, and will know not the speech of them which are puffed up, but the power. For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. It is in word, yes, but the word without the power is of no value. I'm I'm ready to come along, says Paul. You say you understand this and you know that, and you're speaking very learnedly and eloquently, very well. I'll come and test you. But what I'll test is this. We'll be in a competition, if you like. You are puffed up and I. It's a matter not of words, but of power. The kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. But listen to him saying it again in the second epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 10, in a very mighty and surely most important and relevant passage for today. 2 Corinthians 10, listen. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war in the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God. And bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. I'm not afraid of all of you, says Paul. I'm not in the flesh. It isn't I. I have war not according to the flesh, but after the spirit. And this spirit is so powerful, it can bring down your citadels and towers and palaces and all your castles and defenses and demolish them and raise them to the ground. That's the authority. Apologetics, as I said last Sunday morning, is all right as far as it goes, but it never wins the victory. It can show the fallacy of others. It can never assert the positive. There is only one power that has always defended the faith, and that is the power of the Holy Ghost authenticating. But that brings me to my last word, which is the authority of the Holy Spirit in evangelism. 
And it's here, it seems to me, the church is going most seriously and sadly astray today. It seems to be relying on every power and authority except this. But, my dear friends, it will lead to nothing. It may lead to a temporary stir. It may, by the grace of God, lead to a number of individual conversions. But it won't reassert the authority. I say that on this basis. There is that statement which we must never forget, except at our gravest peril, which is there in the first chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostles. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in Judea, and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Do you see what it means? Have we caught its significance? You are going to be my witnesses, said the Lord to these disciples, these apostles. But he said, you can't do it as you are. You've got to stay where you are until you receive this authority, this power. Do you know what that means? It means this. Here were men who had spent the best part of three years with the Lord himself. They had heard all his sermons. They'd seen all his miracles. They were able to ask him questions and to get answers. They saw his death. They saw his burial. They literally saw him risen from the grave and the empty tomb, you would have thought that if anybody could be a witness to the person and the teaching and the work and the fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it was these men. They'd seen it all with their naked eyes. And yet he says even to them, you can't do it until you receive power. And what was the power? The power that was given to them on the day of Pentecost by the Holy Spirit. Now here's the obvious deduction, isn't it? If these men were in the most advantageous position that men ever could be in to be witnesses to Christ, if they couldn't do it, how can we do it? You see, it isn't enough to bring out your arguments and your proofs. Bring them out. It's all right. I'm not saying there shouldn't be apologetics. All I'm saying is that they'll never give you the, the authority. There is only one authority to witness to Christ, and that is the power of the Holy Spirit. Not a brilliantly organized meeting, not entertainment, not things to attract. No, no. There is only one authority, the authority of the Holy Ghost. The apostles who seem to be so perfectly equipped could do nothing without it. But given this authority, they did it. And you read the great story in the book of the Acts of the Apostles. This is the sort of thing, you know, that happened in the early church. Listen to Acts 4.31. And when they had prayed, these believers... The place was shaken where they assembled together and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and they spake the word of God with boldness. I wonder what modern Christians would say and feel like if the building were shaken. Enthusiasm, they'd say. Ecstasy, excess. Beware, we don't want that sort of thing. We don't want... Ah, oh, we want, of course, the help of the Holy Spirit as long as we are in control. We want the aid of the Spirit. But these men were taken hold of. They were possessed. These men are drunk, said the populace, filled with new wine. Look at them. Is anybody ever likely to say that about us? No, no, we are so decent and controlled and respectable. Our dignity and our decorum. My dear friends, I'm not advoca advocating chaos. I'm not advocating excesses. But I am saying this. Are we not in danger of quenching the Holy Spirit in our fear of these things? This is what the Spirit does. And with great power gave the apostles witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. That was after they were filled. Great power. 
with great power gave the apostles witness to the resurrection. You see, as men, they could have said, yes, we were with him. We heard him. We saw him risen from the dead. They could have said it, but not with power. It's the filling with the Spirit that did it. The might, the authority of the Spirit. And you go on through that great book and you'll find it everywhere. Power given to the Apostle Paul to strike that man Elymas the sorcerer blind. Power to heal. It isn't of necessity that you'll always have these signs. There may be miracles, they may not. It's the authority that he gives in this spoken word. That's been the characteristic of every revival from the very beginning until this present moment. Well, I close by putting it to you like this. You notice what Paul said to these Corinthians. My speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of men's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. That's why he had determined not to know anything among them save Jesus Christ and him crucified. He didn't preach about philosophy. He didn't show his learning. He simply trusted to this, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. He says the same thing to the Thessalonians when he says, Our gospel came unto you not in word only, but in power, and with the Holy Ghost, and with much assurance. That's preaching. That's the thing that made the difference. And you know, you read the long history of the church in every period of revival, you will find the same thing. In the diaries of a man called Howell Harris, one of the great Methodist leaders 200 years ago, the word he always uses is the word authority. He says, I preached in such and such a place, but I felt no authority. Then he preaches in another place, and he said, the authority returned. And he knew the exact difference. You'll find it in them all. The unction, the authority, the power. This is the thing that makes preaching effective, that makes all witnessing effective. And without it, we are ineffective. And this, you see, is something that you see not only in individuals, but in the whole church. What is a revival? Well, a revival of religion is just this. It's the Holy Spirit descending in power upon a number of people at the same time. Perhaps upon a whole church, perhaps just upon a few, perhaps upon a neighbor, sometimes a whole country is affected. It's the same thing as you read of in the book of the Acts of the Apostles. It's this authority coming down, and men suddenly see things that they've believed for years in a new way. They stand out and they're filled with joy and glory and with power and authority. They're transformed. Moody tells us, that after that experience of his in Wall Street in New York City, when this happened to him, that he went on preaching the same sermons as he'd preached before, but the effects were altogether different. He hadn't got many sermons. He preached the same ones again, but he said they were absolutely different. He felt different, and the effects were different. That's the thing, the authority of the Spirit. Very well, then, what is the deduction that we draw from all these things? Surely it's evident the one central real need of the church today is the authority of the Holy Spirit. What can we do about that, you say? Well, there's one thing every one of us can do, and that is to pray for revival. Very few people pray for revival today. They pray for particular persons, particular campaigns, particular activities which they themselves are engaged in. It's all right. Go on with that. Keep on with that. That's perfectly all right. But I say, much more important than all that is a prayer for revival. 
A prayer that God's Spirit will so descend upon the church, this church, every church, where the truth is believed, that the Spirit may come and authenticate what we believe about the Lord, what we believe about the Scriptures. You see, you've got to have the right belief of Him and the Scriptures before the Spirit will authenticate and honor it and give authority to it. But this is the paramount need. And you know when the Holy Spirit does descend, more can happen in five minutes than in fifty years. Three thousand on the day of Pentecost. Subsequent movements. All the great and glorious revivals. The same men, some of them very small, insignificant men. Men without any abilities, but the power and the unction and the authority came. It descends upon a congregation and things begin to happen. And it spreads like a prairie fire. The greatest need of the hour is the authority of the Holy Spirit to authenticate the truth about our blessed Lord, the truth concerning the Word of God which presents Him to us, makes us believe in Him, enables others to believe in Him, and manifests His supreme glory. If we really see these things, well then, my friends, I trust that at this moment we are all resolving together to pray to God without ceasing, to visit the church again in revival and reawakening, to open the windows of heaven and pour forth, shed abroad, the Holy Spirit in his power and in his might.